have the most unsettling chapter of the book of Ruth today. Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor raises eyebrows, causes others to blush. Were the book turned into a movie, some would say that chapter 3 would exclude it from a G rating and requires serious parental guidance. But all that depends on how you interpret the details. Before we get there, though, I, wanna, I want you to imagine what life was like for Ruth and Naomi. Uh, as the story goes so far, Naomi and Ruth lost their husbands and were now widows in the promised land. The Lord had once again provided food, but without a husband, both Naomi and Ruth uh, end up having to uh, glean scraps alongside the, the poor. They lacked economic support from a husband. They, they lacked the protection of a male figure. They, they had nobody to perpetuate their name in the promised land. They had nobody to preserve their inheritance in the promised land. In short, we might say that, that Ruth and Naomi lacked rest in the land. Rest in a husband and a home and an inheritance that came with life in the promised land. Naomi even hints at this desire... Uh, Back in chapter 1, verse 9, this desire for rest, uh, she says there, uh, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Would the Lord answer this prayer for rest? Making our way through chapter 2 last week, we got a glimmer of hope that, that maybe he will. Boaz, one of their relatives, one of their redeemers. Could Boaz be the one to bring them rest? Chapter 3 opens with this question lingering in the air. Ruth gleaned until the end of both uh, the barley and the wheat harvest. Chapter 2, verse 23 tells us. And so roughly two months have, have passed. But with reflection on Boaz... As we'll soon find out, it's only to say that that we as readers wonder, you know, how far is Boaz's kindness going to go? Uh, Will will he sacrifice anything further? He's acted so graciously to Ruth. Will he also provide her and Naomi rest? As we enter the first scene of chapter 3, Naomi seems to be wondering the same thing. She still wants rest for Ruth. But would Boaz provide it? Verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well or, or good with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So... So we see here, Naomi wants rest for Ruth. The rest she has in mind is a husband and a home. 
Boaz has entered the picture. He's a worthy man. He shows them favor. He happens to be a close relative of one of their redeemers, a Goel. If you recall, one way among others that a Goel could redeem a relative was by marrying the deceased relative's widow. And remember, uh, during this stage in Israel's history, marriage and procreation were crucial aspects to the covenant. There was importance to the family line in maintaining your name and inheritance in the promised land. So Naomi starts putting two and two together. Rest for Ruth and a husband and a home. Boaz seems like a good man. One of our kinsmen redeemers. Lights go on. Naomi's got a plan. But what kind of plan is this really? Anoint and dress yourself, and under the cover of night, go uncover this man's feet and lie down? Really? Uncover his feet and lie down. Each of those words, uncover, feet, lie down, those words sometimes carry strong sexual overtones in Scripture. Naomi's instructions cause... Anyone who's reading the Bible to sit upright in our chair and start wondering what exactly she's suggesting. Excuse me? I mean, does, does she know the risks involved here for Ruth? Does she know the temptations she's forcing upon Boaz? Is, is this another, what are you doing, Naomi, kind of moment? But before jumping to too many conclusions, let's give the details a closer look. True, the language sometimes carries strong sexual overtones, but... But none of these words have to be taken that way. And there's good reason to believe they shouldn't be taken that way, at least in what Naomi intends for Ruth to communicate to Boaz. So, first of all, the exact word form of this word feet appears in only one other place, Daniel 10, verse 6 where it clearly refers to the legs. And also, others have shown more specifically, it refers to the place where the feet lay, as opposed to the place where your head might lay. Ruth was to uncover that place where his feet lay and nothing more. Verse 8 also says that Boaz finds her, literally... Lying near the place. Nothing in the story implies that Ruth would give in so easily to Naomi's plan if it did involve throwing herself at Boaz like a prostitute. Rather, Ruth is presented as a woman who remains firm in following the Lord even when Naomi doesn't seem to be. Third, Boaz, who's a worthy man, ends up praising Ruth for her actions in verse 10 even calling her a worthy woman in verse 11. And finally, Naomi doesn't seem to be asking Ruth to pretty herself in order to seduce Boaz. Putting on her cloak doesn't mean putting on her best evening wear. A lot of times, the same words used in in the law, uh, it's the cloak that poor people would wear at night to cover themselves up with when it's cold. So, So besides, what's Boaz going to see in the dark? Also, the same series of words, washing, anointing, and changing clothes. You can find these in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. Same exact series of, of, of phrases. David, in, in 2 Samuel 12, is mourning for his son 
But once he finds out his son died, he washes, he anoints himself, and he changes his clothes. And that act signals that his time of mourning has ended. Okay? In this culture, widows wore garments of widowhood. Genesis chapter 38. We see this with Tamar. So if 2 Samuel 12 is analogous to this situation... Naomi wants Ruth to show Boaz that her time of mourning has ended. So I don't take Naomi, at least in her intent, what she's intending to communicate. Doesn't mean it couldn't be taken that way. She's she's intending to encourage, she's not intending to encourage Ruth into a sexual act with Boaz. She wants Ruth to make it abundantly clear to Boaz that she's ready for marriage. Perhaps this is why Boaz hasn't made any further advances. He's he's giving Ruth the time she needs to mourn the loss of her husband. That doesn't mean that Naomi isn't taking a huge risk with this plan. As well as possibly jeopardizing Ruth's reputation. It's at night. Why not during the day? Not only would, would a woman be approaching a man about marriage, but a servant would be approaching her master. A foreigner would be approaching an Israelite. The odds of this going over well aren't in Ruth's favor. More than that, Naomi wants to communicate one innocent message. Boaz, you marry this girl. She's ready. But that still depends on Boaz receiving the, the message that way. He could misunderstand Ruth's actions and he could take advantage of Ruth. After all, isn't this happening during the spiritually dark days of the judges? Knowing Boaz from earlier, that's probably not likely. More likely is that he could take Ruth to be seeking some kind of favor and run her off. After all, weren't Moabite women known for this kind of thing? Back in Numbers chapter 25, we see them leading Israel astray. So there's still plenty of tension with the ambiguity here. And the tension is even worse than you think if you're familiar with a couple of other stories in Scripture. I mean, we've been here before in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 19, Lot's daughters get their dad drunk so they can each go to him at night to continue the family line. A very shameful situation. And it's out of that incestuous ordeal that the Moabites come about. Ruth is a Moabite. Any, any reader of scripture is going, oh, crud. Like, is it one of those again? Like, come on, Ruth. We're counting on you to make a better ending of this story. Then in Genesis 38, Judah Refuses to change out of her garments of widowhood. And she puts on the clothes of a prostitute. In order to seduce Judah to continue the family line. Again, shameful. If you're in tune with the rest of scripture. You're freaking out right now in the book of Ruth. No, this cannot go that way. Boaz, I expect a better ending to this story. So we're meant to feel the tension. The ambiguity is there is... To provoke this awkwardness of it all. Because this story turns out differently than those did. This story shows us how a worthy man and a worthy woman, full of the Lord's kindness, respond in a situation like this one that has risk written all over it. 
that has temptation written all over it. The story is meant to contrast the previous stories in Israel that weren't so full of kindness, that weren't so full of loyalty, and that weren't so full of purity. So in contrast to those stories, this story should encourage the covenant community to exemplify the strong, loyal character that we see in Ruth and Boaz. We'll get to more of that in a minute. To our great relief, then, comes scene number two, where Ruth basically just tells Boaz, marry me. She follows through with Naomi's plan in verses six to nine, but she makes sure that Boaz gets the message right. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, meaning in a good state, not in this drunken stupor, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. You can imagine being in Ruth's shoes, right? You can see her there. She's following Naomi's plan. She doesn't want him to misunderstand this whole thing. She's like, I'm Ruth. Spread your wings. Like, let's make sure this is clear up front. Here's where we find the the significance of everything that just happened. Here we find the whole point of uncovering Boaz's legs. Ruth's words tell us the point. Spread your wings over your servant. Two really important things to notice here. One is that Boaz used very similar words in chapter 2 verse 12 to talk about Yahweh, the Lord. Verse 12 of chapter 2, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, same word, you have come to take refuge. That was Boaz's blessing upon Ruth. Now Ruth is basically telling Boaz, All right, time to put your money where your mouth is always protecting care by spreading your wings over me. So the focus hones in on Boaz to see whether this man is going to exemplify Yahweh or not. Yahweh comes to help the helpless and commits himself to his people's well-being. Is Boaz going to do the same thing? Number two, there's a play on words here, a double meaning. The word behind wings can also refer to, to the edges of one's garment. Like a man's cloak. Like the cloak that Boaz was using to cover his legs at night. So for a man to cast the edge of his garment over a woman was not just signaling a desire to protect her, but a desire to commit himself to her in marriage. So we see this also between Yahweh and Israel. It uses the same exact uh, uh, imagery. Uh, God says, when I pass by you again, he's talking about Israel, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. 
So the whole point of uncovering Boaz's legs was to create the symbolic gesture for marriage and in a way that he that we would see him then exemplifying Yahweh himself. How does Boaz respond? Let's keep reading to find out in verse 10. And he said, "May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first." And that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. In other words, she wasn't chasing after attractiveness. She wasn't chasing after romance or money. Verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer... Yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor... And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And now there's the sigh of relief. Like, okay, we know where this is going now. Both Boaz and Ruth remain loyal to the Lord and kind to one another throughout this whole situation. Boaz even calls Ruth's action a kindness, a a Chesed, it's not just uh, something she's doing for herself, but something she's doing both for her dead husband and for Naomi. That's why Ruth gives the reason she does in her marriage proposal. For you are a redeemer. So you're the man, Boaz, to preserve the family inheritance and perpetuate my husband's name in the promised land. You're the one who could provide Elimelech and Malin an heir. So for Ruth, marriage is for the Lord's kingdom of kindness advancing, not just fulfilling personal dreams and satisfying romantic desires. Oh, that our marriages and families and friendships would be full of this kind of resolve and strategy. How can we... Advance. This is what marriage is about, family is about. How can we advance the Lord's kingdom of kindness in this city, in our home, in our workplace? Ruth is again exemplifying the Lord's chesed, his kindness, his committed love. It's in her and it's moving her to act. He, we know this sort of kindness is ultimately the Lord's doing. We've seen that earlier in this book. What we see in Ruth is the Lord fulfilling his purpose through the kindness and covenant loyalty that his people show to one another. In his book, Five Festal Garments, Barry Webb writes the following. The book of Ruth shows us that those whom God saves by signs and wonders, as at the Exodus, he continues to save by his providential workings in their day-to-day lives and that his kindness by which Israel is built up is to be found not only in great national deliverances, but in the way his covenant people treat one another. The same is true for you and I. As God's 
new covenant people. The Lord's kindness that builds us up in Christ is to be found not only in the great and the miraculous, but but in the way that you and I treat one another on a daily basis. It was the Lord's kindness that saved us. Romans 11 says that it was God's kindness that, that grafted us into the promise of Abraham. Galatians 5 lists kindness among the fruit of the Spirit that ought to be present in the church. If we're not kind people, we have to question whether the Spirit is truly in us. If He's in us, the Bible says that we will show to others the sort of kindness that God has shown to us in Christ. So how are you showing the Lord's kindness to one another on a daily basis? Husbands, how is the Lord's kindness leading you to sacrifice and to serve your wife? Wives, does does your husband get to witness the Lord's kindness working through you on on a daily basis? Brothers, does does your kindness display itself in self-control and sexual purity and respect for women like we see here in Boaz? Is your loyalty to the Lord at a place where, where you would honor the woman if you found yourself in a situation like this one? Or would the cover of darkness and aloneness give, you way, give way to, to something perverted? If you think it would give way to something perverted, come out of the darkness. Bring your sin into the light. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The church is here to hear you and to help you. Sisters, is your kindness willing to to take the necessary risks to see your sisters in Christ provided for? Are we willing to make strategic choices on a day-to-day basis so that the Lord's kingdom of kindness Advances And what do those strategic choices look like? What do they look like for you as an individual? What do they look like for you as a family? What do they look like for us as a church? What will they look like this Christmas as you gather with family members and friends? Some of you will likely be tested in this area, especially since family gatherings can be emotionally charged what impact might it have on somebody's life if if you sought to exemplify the Lord's kindness and his extravagant grace in the midst of chaos and harsh tones and responses from others and grumbling and complaining Ruth's concern is for Naomi at all costs here. Boaz's concern is for Ruth and Naomi at all costs. We we can learn from the relentless kindness that's being manifested here between two worthy individuals in God's covenant people. But we also learned something remarkable through this this whole situation with with Boaz. I mean, Boaz is the redeemer of the story. But what kind of redeemer is he? A few qualities carry over from from chapter 2. Boaz continues to show compassion to, to a foreigner. 
He extends the Lord's blessing to her even though she's not part of Israel. Boaz also continues to to protect Ruth. He he says, do not fear in verse verse 11. In verse 14, he protects Ruth from shame. You know, Boaz is right when they see her walking away in the morning. So he says, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz also continues his generous provision. In verse 15, he has Ruth hold out her garment. Again, this is no fancy evening attire. He stuffs it with six measures of barley. (laughs) In chapter 2, verse 18, Ruth picked up the 50-pound sack and carried it home. Not here. Boaz has to pick it up. And he puts it on her got to appreciate the romance here right here carry this like home to your mom (laughs) later we discover that this was Boaz's way of telling Naomi hey you know I got the message loud and clear but we also see a few new things that we didn't see as clearly before one of them rises out of the fact that that there's a redeemer who who's even closer than Boaz so there's another relative on deck before Boaz can step up to the plate. And this shows us that Boaz is a man of integrity. He wants to marry Ruth, but not in a way that would compromise the Lord's word. But even more, it shows us that Boaz was not obligated to redeem Ruth in the first place. He willingly obligates himself to redeem Ruth. And that willingness to redeem her then manifests itself in what he does next. He he so commits herself to her that he becomes her servant. Remember remember who Boaz is. Boaz is lord of the harvest in this story. He's he's the owner of everything. Uh, And Ruth is a servant. But look at verse 7. Boaz, we see Boaz so commits himself to her that that he says, I will do for you all that you ask. Isn't that amazing? I will do for you all that you ask. He's her master. But he becomes her servant. And, And the rest of the story shows Boaz doing this. He serves and does all that's necessary to ensure Ruth is redeemed, even... Even if others in Israel won't fulfill their obligation to the covenant, he's going to, for Ruth's sake, for Naomi's sake. In fact, he refuses to rest until Ruth and Naomi are redeemed. And we, which brings us to the final scene three here. Boaz refuses to, to rest until Ruth and Naomi are redeemed. Chapter 2 ended with Ruth bringing good news to Naomi. Chapter 3 ends with Ruth bringing good news to Naomi. Verse 16, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these see, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Take note of that there. This is one of the reasons why I titled this series From from Emptiness to Fullness. Chapter 1 ended with Naomi saying, the Lord brought me back empty. Boaz is signaling to Naomi that the Lord is about to make her more full than she ever had been before. These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, 
You must not go back to your mother-in-law empty. Something to consider, especially with the subject of rest, uh, beginning this chapter, is in the Bible, seven is the number of completeness, and it comes, it grows out of the Lord creating the world in six days and then resting on the seventh, is Boaz saying more to Ruth and Naomi than what's on the surface? Is he saying with these that there's a greater anticipation of rest that's coming their way? A seventh blessing of rest? The rest she prayed for? The rest in him becoming Ruth's husband at home? Verse 18, Naomi replies... Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So notice the correlation with how the chapter began and how the chapter ends. The chapter begins, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? And now, my daughter, wait, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The idea is that Boaz is the type of servant redeemer who willingly refuses to rest until he brings his people rest in their redemption. What is Ruth to do? Wait. Wait upon him to accomplish all that's necessary to redeem her and bring her rest. So Boaz isn't obligated to redeem Ruth, but he willingly chooses to redeem Ruth. Boaz is Ruth's lord, but he chooses the path of a servant. And as that servant, Boaz refuses to rest until he brings Ruth and Naomi rest. You know where we're going next. Is this not a pointer to the things we find in our Lord Jesus Christ? Again, I think Boaz is a type of Christ. He's a figure who's prophetically pointing forward to the realities that are bound up with Jesus, but in a far superior way. To To begin, God's Son was not obligated to redeem us. There was nothing about us or in us or something that we did that we that obligated Christ to come to our rescue. Ephesians 2, 3, 2, 2 uh, chapter, verses 1 to 3 says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. We followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were by nature children of wrath. We were God's enemies. We, we couldn't participate in God's rest because we had rebelled against him. There's nothing that obligates God to rescue rebels. If anything, God's holiness and his love for his own glory obligates him to punish us, to condemn us. But in his love, in his kindness, in his mercy, God then chooses to redeem us in Christ. Freely, of his own doing. Christ willingly chooses to redeem us because of his great love and kindness. Not because we were so lovable. Christ willingly obligates himself to us. Furthermore, in choosing to become our redeemer... Our sovereign Lord took the form of a servant. I mean, his coming as a child in a manger speaks volumes to this that we celebrate at Christmas. He takes this lowly state. He was Lord of the universe, but 
John 13 says he, he still chooses to, to shed his garments, to wrap himself in a towel and, and wash the disciples' feet. Philippians chapter 2 says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus obeyed his Father even to the point of death on a cross. Luke's gospel tells us that, that when his time came, that, that Jesus he set his face to go to Jerusalem. His kindness toward us led to this, this absolute resolve and was finished. He not only faced temptations in the flesh, he not only endured the sufferings that, that we suffer, he not only bore the shame that we wear, he, he did it all without sin. And that qualified him to then stand in our place under the wrath of God until he cried, it is finished. Jesus' love obligated himself to us whatever it would cost him. And by so doing, he accomplished all that's necessary to redeem us. And it's through that relentless kindness that, that gives everything for our sake that Jesus also brings us rest. Rest in a husband and a home. Christ is the church's covenant husband, Ephesians 5.32 tells us. And not too long ago, you know, we had a memory verse from John 14. That in my Father's house are many rooms. If it, if it wasn't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, will I also not come again? And so that I might take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So in Christ, we find true marriage, a true home, a true and lasting inheritance. In other words, in Christ, we find our true rest. He brings rest not just temporarily in the promised land, but eternally in a new heaven and a new earth. He is our true security, our only hope for deliverance, blessing, relief from the curse, relief from our enemies. His cross secured our rest. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our rest. And Jesus' future coming will complete our rest. Revelation fourteen thirteen says this for those in Christ. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Or similarly, in Revelation 7, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. We've seen this language before. Under His wings, He will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's true rest. That's the kind of rest that we need. This world is so wrought full of pain and unrest. The holiday season is a time of cheer for, for some, but for many people, it's a reminder of pain. It's a reminder of sorrow. 
It's a reminder of unrest. It's a reminder of what things are supposed to be like, but they're not. We're around all kinds of brokenness in our families and friends. We, we gather at the table and, and some of us are just looking for excuses to leave. Oh, kids are tired, you gotta go. Others of us gather at the table and, and don't see the faces of, of loved ones that we want to see. It's not a restful time for many. It, it doesn't feel like home. And this season is just one among others where our rest seems altogether undone. But this is the message we celebrate at Christmas, brothers and sisters. Christ has come. Our true rest has come. He is the ultimate redeemer. Christ willingly became our redeemer when when not obligated to. Christ did so by taking the role of a servant when he is our Lord. And he refused to rest in his earthly mission until he accomplished our redemption and rest. You see, our worst problem threatening our rest is behind us. Because Christ endured our punishment on the cross to bring us rest. Now we have nothing but promise to look forward to. Boaz gave Naomi six measures of barley to signal, hey, more is coming. Jesus Christ has given us the Holy Spirit. To say to us, hey, more is coming. Eternal rest is coming. I am coming. Be patient. Wait for me. What then is our response? Well, like Ruth, we must seek the Lord's refuge through his appointed Redeemer. We must seek the Lord's refuge through his appointed Redeemer. In this case, it's Boaz for them. In our case, the fulfillment we find in Christ, it is Jesus. He is the true son of David. We cannot just sit here and listen to this story and be unresponsive to the word of God. We we must respond by giving every loyalty that we have to Christ. We must do everything we can to make him our redeemer. We we cannot just know him to be the redeemer, to be a redeemer in this story. We, We have to act to make him our redeemer. The New Testament is clear on how that happens. It happens through faith. Placing our trust in Christ alone and forsaking self-effort in our salvation To resist Christ will be to find yourself without rest for eternity. Revelation 14 also says of those who are outside of Christ, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day and night. So trust in him. Escape the wrath to come. Keep running to him. He's the only redeemer who is able to save us. We must also act in kindness toward one another. In in what we've been reading about here in Ruth, in hesed, kindness, committed love toward each other. 
The Lord's kindness and committed love should become part of the rhythm of our lives. Kindness should extend to everything in our lives. Every act, every thought, every, everything we, 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 we plan to do. There should be an aura of kindness about the church and the church's people. People should be able to see kindness in what we say and do. People should see kindness exuding from every jot and tittle on your Facebook account. There, then shut it down and stop bringing reproach on Christ and the church until you can exude the Lord's kindness in those kinds of settings. Because we've been shown so much kindness in Christ, we can willingly love and serve those our flesh may be less inclined to love and serve. We can willingly choose to show kindness to our enemies and seek to do them good because Christ has shown us kindness when we were enemies. We can be a community of people who so obligates themselves to each other that that will give whatever it costs to see somebody prospering in Christ, made whole in Christ. Full. In Christ. Their problems are own until they too are resting in Christ. Just like we see in the story of the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. And finally, we must wait for Christ to finish the good work he began and bring us that final rest. Jesus' first coming in humility, it set in motion an entire age that's, that's breaking into this world, and it cannot be reversed. It cannot be reversed because he sealed it in his blood and he rose from the dead on the third day to come again in glory. Jesus' first coming set in motion an age that cannot be reversed. His kingdom is breaking into the world. His death on the cross secured it. Soon he will come again in glory to complete the work he began. Until then, we must faithfully wait. Waiting doesn't mean inactivity. Quite the opposite. It means devoting ourselves to the Lord's will and his kingdom until it arrives in all of its fullness. It means resting in God's sovereignty over all things and and resting in his omnipotent ability to bring his purpose to pass even through imperfect people and sinful situations like we see here in Ruth. Pray for the kingdom of kindness to come. Trust that the Lord's work will finally be complete on earth as it is in heaven. In the same way that he was working for Ruth and Naomi's good, He is also working for our good in Christ, who is our Redeemer. Why don't we pray?